Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. My name is Suzanne Spradley, and I am joined by my colleague, Chase Cannon. We are both attorneys at NFP uh, in, in the Benefits Compliance section. And Chase, welcome back. We missed you last week. Oh, thank you. Good to be back. As we discussed on our last podcast, and as you've been hearing in the news, the Senate's attempt at repeal and replace uh, their efforts failed. Not, uh, not news to most of you out there. I'm sure most of you are following quite closely. And it still remains to be seen what other attempts will happen when they reconvene um, after the uh, August recess. There are some efforts that will be brought to the forefront, but many believe that most of Congress wants to move on and deal with other things such as tax reform. So assuming that nothing happens on the legislative uh, front, what we'd like to delve into today is what could happen from a regulatory perspective. And so, Chase, um, tell us a little bit more about the background on that possibility. Right. So just high level to begin with, when we're talking regulatory changes, we're talking about what can the agencies within the administration do. Specifically, we're talking about the IRS, the DOL, and uh, HHS, which is the Department of Health and Human Services. Those are the three main regulatory agencies within the government that are charged with enforcing the laws of the land, and specifically in this instance, the ACA, or healthcare reform. So this really gets back to day one in the Oval Office for President Trump. If you remember, that seems like a really long time ago when Trump took office. But on his first day in office, Trump signed an executive order asking or directing the regulatory agencies to do what they can to reduce the regulatory burden associated with the ACA. So in other words, he wants the IRS, the DOL, HHS to do what they can to help employers as well as others in the that are impacted by the ACA here, like medical device manufacturers, some of the states. He wants them to feel less burdened by the ACA. You know, that's interesting. And we have actually seen a, a change in regulatory procedure whereby they have to eliminate two regulations for every one regulation that they want to implement. So that it certainly has changed the scope of things. But right. that really begs the obvious question, what can a regulatory agency actually do when it comes to interpreting, enforcing the law generally, and more specifically in the case of the ACA? Well, yeah, that's the question for sure. And the answer, of course, as we often say on here, it's not entirely clear. We just don't know. But to help explain, we have to go back to year one of law school. And I'm sure you have some great memories on that, Suzanne, as do I. I will not subject our listeners to the same level of brutality that first-year law professors seem to right. want to put on their students. But I think it can help to, to revisit this point without getting that far. So basically, it comes down to an understanding of the difference between a statute and a regulation. And those two things are actually different, even though people, including us in the industry, often interchange the two. We'll say based on a regulation or based on the statute, those sometimes come across as the same thing. Um, but basically, there's a difference between those two. And actually, I'm going to start with some similarities between the two, uh, but just the thought that they are two different things. Both statutes and regulations provide rules relating to a particular topic. Both are generally codified, meaning they're published, so that everybody that the law or the, the statute or the regulation impacts their those individuals are on notice regarding what is and what isn't legal. And both are generally referred to as the law, 
and usually have the same or similar legal force. They're both enforceable by the government. And um, we'll talk about some reasons why maybe a regulation wouldn't be enforceable as law down the road if, if an agency oversteps what they're supposed to be doing. Um, but those are some similarities between the two. For differences, though, and that's really where we're get going here, that the statute is the law itself. It's the actual language that is enacted by Congress. So it's the law that is passed by the House and the Senate and then signed into law by the president. So these are the actual bills that you hear about that are going through Congress. And the language in them, which is oftentimes written in very formal and, and difficult to read language, that constitutes the statute. So this is what we were talking about when we say the Affordable Care Act itself or HIPAA, if we refer to HIPAA or whatever law we're referring to, we're generally referring to the actual law itself. So that's the statute. That's the statutory language. But Congress, in passing a law, they don't always get into the dirty details of the law, and they don't always figure out exactly how the law is going to play out in the real world. And that's where the regulatory agencies come into play, and that's what, where we start getting what are called regulations. Um, and that term here actually makes sense. It's a regulatory authority, and they're charged with regulating the laws it applies on a federal basis. And so what they put out as guidance, that's referred to as a regulation. Um, they can always be challenged, as I was just talking about. If someone feels like the IRS or DOL has overstepped their authority, then that party could challenge the IRS or DOL. Um, for example, if the IRS just started making up new rules that go beyond what is required by the statute or by the law itself, that could be challenged. But so it, that's a, yeah, that's a great point because the statute itself provides the framework and it's really, it really is what governs what a regulation can include. So a regulation cannot go beyond the bounds of what the statute has authorized, correct? Right. And so, and so when we're looking at the ACA in general, take us back to now how that's affected with the Trump's executive order. Right. So I came up with two examples that kind of help illustrate this difference between a statute and a regulation, and that will help explain what the IRS or any regulatory agency could do in changing the ACA going forward per Trump's sort of executive directive. Um, the first example is 6056 reporting. So if you remember, this is what we've all had to deal with over the last few years of reporting to the IRS on Form 1095-C and then providing a copy of that 1095-C to employees. Well, I'm so glad you're bringing this up because this is really one of the main questions that we get asked. If, if there's no fix, if there's no repeal and replace um, efforts that are successful in Congress, how can they make changes to ease the burden of reporting? Right. So to answer that question, we need to know exactly what the statute says because the IRS is sort of bound, as you're saying, by this framework of the statute in what they can change. So 6056 requires employers that are large and subject to the employer mandate to file a report. And that report, based on the statutory language, has to include the following things. The first one is pretty straightforward, the name, date, and employer identification number of, of the employer. Um, that has to include, secondly, a certification as to whether the employer offers uh, minimum essential coverage or an employer plan to its full-time employees. So those two seem pretty straightforward. Maybe you could get rid of 1095C and just have a check the box that we've heard that says, yes, well, here's my employer name and ID, and yes, I've offered coverage to all of my full-time employees. 
that would work. The problem is, is the next section says um, that there's additional information that has to be included in this report, and that includes first the length of any waiting period with respect to the coverage, the months during uh, the calendar year for which coverage under the plan was available. Third is the monthly premium for the lowest cost option in each of the enrollment categories under the plan. And fourth, the employer's share of the total allowed cost of benefits provided under the plan. That's really unfortunate. That's a lot of detail that's, all, that's in the statute. That means it would require a legislative fix to change. So what's, what's in the regulatory side um, that, that could be a potentially massaged or amended a bit? Right. So the IRS basically took this statutory language that we just read. There's one other thing that's, or two other things that are important here. The number of full-time employees for each month during the calendar year, and then the name, address, and tax ID number or social security number of each full-time employee, uh, and the months during which they were covered under the health plan. So all of that has to be in whatever report that the IRS comes up with. The IRS obviously worked that out and developed this 1095C. And that's where we see, particularly in lines 14, 15, and 16, where you report using these codes, 1A, 1B, 1D, whatever the offer of coverage was, is line 14. Line 15 asks about the employee's contribution amount. And line 16 requires you to, uh, the employer to report uh, whether the individual is enrolled, and if not, why not? Um, it also outlines several different affordability safe harbors that um, could excuse the employer from not offering coverage, right? The employee waived coverage, so the employer reports that it would have been affordable based on one of those three affordability safe harbors. And that last line probably gets more to them trying to gather data for the premium tax credit rather than for the employer trying to report on their own actions right. of whether they offered coverage. So it's really something that's not included within the statute, but it's helpful to the IRS so that they can enforce the premium tax credit. Right. There may be other reasons that that's included on the form uh, for help overall in, in enforcing the, uh, the ACA and helping with these premium tax credits. So yeah, definitely um, that's where you see possibly some room for simplification though. If you have maybe some of those codes start to go away or maybe they come up with a single code rather than having a choice of three affordability safe codes, maybe there's just one that says coverage would have been affordable based on any one of the three. So you might see the ability based on how the statute's written now for the IRS to come up with some different ways of may and maybe we call that simplified reporting, uh, but it's probably not going to be as easy as just check the box or just report yes on the W-2 they were offered coverage because the statutory language requires more than that. So like you were saying, one solution would be if the two sides in Congress could come together and say, hey, we think this is a difficult thing for employers. Let's both together change the statutory language to eliminate some of these requirements on reporting. Then you might be able to get to a, a place where the IRS could say, okay, yes, we're just going to check the box. Or yes, we're just going to go to a single form that says, I offered coverage to all my full-time employees. But absent that, the IRS is really restricted on what they can uh, simplify and what they can just eliminate from that 1095C, if that makes sense. Yeah, so so no check the box on the W-2 without a legislative fix, without Congress stepping in and have probably some bipartisan bill that passes through um, Congress, the Senate, and signed by uh, the president. 
otherwise we're limited in the um, changes that can be made to that form. So can you, are there other examples that you can bring up um, as it relates to the ACA? Yes. So the other example that I came up with is similarly found in the ACA's employer mandate. This one talks about what it means to be a full-time employee. So if you remember, um, the penalties under the employer mandate and that requirement is found in IRC section 4980H. Maybe you wouldn't know that if you were an employer, but that's where the penalties, that's where this requirement is coming to offer coverage to all of your full-time employees. As part of that statute, uh, there's a definition of full-time employee, and it says this specifically, the term full-time employee means, with respect to any month, an employee who is employed on an average at least 30 hours of service per week. Uh. So that's been a question, right? Why, why can't the IRS come out and say, oh, guess what, we think 30 hours per week is actually a part-time employee. That's kind of how the industry has looked at that in the past. Let's bump that up to 40 hours per week. That would be a way to lessen the burden if you're just looking at it and trying to achieve what Trump wants the agency to, to be able to achieve. Yet the statutory language is certain here. And so the IRS cannot on its own change that definition from 30 hours to 40 hours. So that would again require a legislative change through Congress. Now, the next paragraph after that says hours of service, and it says, to define that, it says, the secretary shall prescribe such regulations, rules, and guidance as may be necessary to determine the hours of service of an employee, including rules for the application of this paragraph to employees who are not compensated on an hourly basis. So that paragraph right there gives the IRS a lot of leeway in how an employer could determine who's full-time. So... Over the last few years, we've spent a lot of time walking through these look-back measurement periods, stability periods, particularly for employees who have non-traditional schedules or who are seasonal. And all of those rules were developed by the IRS in regulations. And so I think there's about 150 pages of regulations talking specifically about how you figure out who's a full-time employee. So that's another place where the IRS, maybe they revisit the measurement period and stability period structure and figure out a way to simplify it. Maybe instead of saying you can choose anywhere from three to 12 months, you just say it's always going to be a 12 month period that you look at. Or we look back over the last 12 months to determine the going forward on a rolling basis. So those types of tweaks, the IRS probably would be within their regulatory purview to, to make changes, but they couldn't just go in and say, hey, we're gonna go from 30 to 40, uh, hours per week when we're talking about a full-time employee. So it sounds like it's minor tweaks, and I can imagine pushback on any which any direction that you would make those tweaks. Um, some would feel that it's easier, others may not. Others may have the system in place and it's running like a charm at this point and not want to make a change unless it was a, a major change that could really make a difference. Right. Yep, and that's another challenge is that at this point, a lot of employers are used to it, and so maybe the, the burden that we're talking about with the ACA, we're already past that uh, hump, and going back might actually be more of a burden than just continuing as is going forward. So, so these are, are good examples. So assuming that the, the IRS or the DOL, well, DOL or HHS for that matter um, did decide to make some changes to the regulations. What does that process look like? Is it something that they could just um, wake up tomorrow and say it's now going to be different? 
Yeah, so this is another big challenge when we're talking about regulatory change. Um, we've basically watched this process shake out over the last seven years with the ACA. Um, I'm just using the IRS because it's the most obvious example, but the DOL and HSS have also put out regulations. But they are bound by a strict process when they adopt and finalize regulations. There's an initial drafting period, which seems to take a long time, and that is because these are huge agencies, and there's different parts within the agencies that all want to weigh in and make sure that their specific interest within the agency is being represented. Um, so once they get through that internal discussion, they generally release a proposed version of their regulations. That's required under the law. And with that proposed version, uh, proposed version, there has to be a comment period. That's meant to allow the public interest groups, industry groups, whoever it is, to sort of express their feelings about those proposed regulations, whether that's good or bad. And I'm guessing the IRS probably hears mostly what people don't like about it. Um, so that comment period is usually 60 to 90 days and groups provide feedback and then the IRS has to spend a couple months at the very least going through the comments. They have to respond and revise and maybe make changes to the proposed rules and they have to explain those changes when they eventually uh, publish their final rule. And that's another point here. We, of we often hear the term final rule or final regulation. Those are really the same thing. It's a finalized version of whatever the IRS has decided is going to be. That's then published in the Federal Register and it becomes the official guidance that we cite and that you rely on as an employer. Yeah, and what's frustrating is, in, in, as we've seen at times, they don't issue the final rule. So they have a proposed rule and they never get to that final rule. And so it leaves you a bit in limbo. Of course, you can rely on it until something else comes out, but it's always nice when they tie it up with a bow. Yes. And uh, finalize it. That's a great point. We have outstanding proposed rules with respect to Section 125 and the cafeteria plan. Those are actually proposed rules from 2007 that have never actually been finalized. So it's a great, great, great point for sure. Uh, but it's just a really time consuming process to get a regulation finalized. And so to reverse that, I think the IRS has come out before and, and withdrawn regulations. But generally speaking, even that's a time-consuming process. They have to explain why they're withdrawing the regulation. It must uh, be done via a public announcement or through a publication. That all takes time. And they have to consider a replacement. Is it something that is going to be replaced or are they just pulling it out um, and not replacing it with anything? But if they replace it with something else, then you have to go back through that process that we just described of finalizing a regulation. So. If there's no replacement guidance, the IRS is essentially saying they're not enforcing the law to which the regulations relates, and that really gets to another issue entirely. Okay, so that really brings up a good point, Chase. Um, let's before we wrap up, why don't we talk about non-enforcement? Could the IRS just come out and say, you know, that they weren't going to enforce the individual mandate or the employer mandate, for example? What would happen if they just stopped enforcing it? That's a great question, and I'm afraid I don't have the exact answer, but um, let's explore it a little bit. The IRS can definitely take whatever position they want. It's just a matter of what would be the consequences of that position. Um, there is some precedent for not enforcing certain laws or at least delaying enforcement indefinitely. The examples I came up with um, that relate to employers, uh, one is the ACA's rule to make Section 105 non-discrimination rules. 
um, those are currently applicable to self-insured plans. Make, uh, the ACA makes those applicable to fully insured non-grandfathered plans. So that was part of the ACA, but shortly after the ACA was enacted, the IRS came out with an announcement saying, guess what, we're not going to enforce this until further notice. That was six or seven years ago. We really, we've heard rumblings here and there, but we haven't seen any type of announcement saying they're going to enforce it. So even within Obama's administration, there's this IRS position that we're just going to punt this down the road and not enforce it for now. Two other examples are actually one is related, Section 105, as it applies to self-insured plans. There has been very little enforcement on that. Um, similarly, the IRS has not heavily enforced Section 125 violations for not having a written plan document for your uh, pre-tax benefit plan. Uh, for election changes that occur outside of um, qualifying events mid-plan year. Although we don't want to... Uh, We're not encouraging <laughs> you to do that, but it has not been heavily enforced. So there's some precedent there. No one's ever really challenged it um, because it hasn't really hurt anybody. Um, and it's questionable, you know, who would have standing to be able to sue an agency, um, particularly if there's no harm involved. So... Um, there's precedent for that delay or that uh, punting of the enforcement down the road. Um, but on the other hand, there is a position out there that the agency can't just ignore a law that's on the books, um, that that's not really what they're there for. These agencies were created and charged with enforcing particular laws. Um, even within Trump's own administration, Tom Price, who heads up HHS, has is on record basically saying that he questions whether that's the role of the agency and whether they can really just ignore a law on the books. So it would be interesting to see the fallout if an agency like the IRS announced a non-enforcement policy on a law, particularly if it were a big part of the ACA. Best example I can come up with is the individual mandate. What if the IRS just said, we are not going to enforce this starting tomorrow? And we're not going to charge penalties going back to the last year. Let's just say that. Um, that the, the idea behind the individual mandate is to get everybody in the U.S. covered and to help out with the risk pools, to get more people in the risk pools. Who does that help? That helps the insurance carriers. Um, they're the ones that are taking on some of this risk. It's helpful for them to be able to spread that risk among healthy individuals. And the individual mandate helps get individu healthy individuals into the pools. And that just uh, briefly, that gets back to something we've talked about quite a bit, but that's because that we now have a prohibition on pre-existing condition exclusions. So those carriers can't underwrite based on health status. So they need more people in that risk pool to spread that risk. Right. So that illustrates the complexities of what's going on here, right? So you might see um, an insurance carrier get really upset with the IRS and with the government overall if suddenly the individual mandate is not being enforced and not helping those younger, healthy individuals into the pools. It's unclear exactly what an insurance company could do in that situation, whether they would have standing to actually file a suit in court challenging the IRS and, and trying to force them to comply, but they could definitely put pressure um, politically through their interest groups. They could raise uh, a bunch of hell if they wanted to. Um, but perhaps another way that this could be resolved is Congress. We've seen this in another lawsuit. Congress can challenge the administration for not enforcing a law that's on the books. Or in the situation I'm thinking about, Congress has challenged 
the Their lack of appropriation. Lack of appropriation for the right. cost sharing reduction payments. Right. So you could see a situation perhaps where Congress steps in and files suit against the IRS because the IRS is not doing what they're supposed to be doing in following and enforcing, enforcing the laws. So it would be a very interesting situation. I think the bottom line is, is that the Trump administration has to consider what the fallout would be if they chose to either not enforce a provision or delay enforcement on a provision. There are definitely consequences there. and they would have to think about those consequences and how to deal with them before introducing a policy like that. Yes, and I think you probably picked the one that would uh, receive the most backlash, which is uh, eliminating that individual mandate without any other incentive to try to get those individuals into the risk pool. I don't know that the employer mandate uh, elimination of that would raise as much backlash, although I could see... Um, in some cases, it could just because, again, you're then uh, uh, you're reducing uh, access potentially uh, to individuals. And so that's that just brings up a lot to consider. And what you've talked about today, we certainly hope that we can find that the, the IRS or the DOL make some regulatory changes to lessen the burden administratively of the ACA implementation. But if not, we'll watch for those bipartisan efforts or uh, another plan to make some changes at a legislative front. So thanks again, Chase, for filling us in on on those uh, aspects of potential change that can come uh, in the future. Happy to help. And uh, with that, uh, we will close for today, and we appreciate you joining us. And so with that, it's a wrap. That's a wrap.